0: Hello everybody, this is Scott Yates, Director of Communications and Producer Relations for the Washington Grain Commission, here with episode 207 of Wheat All About It, or what I'm calling Time Flies When You're Breeding Wheat, about my conversation with Aaron Carter, Washington State University's Winter Wheat Breeder. It seems like only yesterday that Carter took over winter wheat breeding duties at WSU, but it's been 10 years. I can't believe it. More on Carter in a moment, but again, I want to remind my faithful podcast listeners that I'm winding up wheat All About It at the end of the month. It's been a terrific four-year run, and I can't thank you enough for listening. But as Pete Seeger wrote in the song, Turn, 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 to everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under heaven. When I first met Carter, he looked more like an undergraduate than someone who had finished his Ph.D. and was embarking on a career serving the wheat farmers of Washington. I wouldn't say he's aged as much as Lincoln during the Civil War, but the last decade has seen him lose some hair, and that which remains is starting to turn gray. Of course, he has a long way to catch up to some of us. In addition to his appearance, Carter has developed more of the gravitas you would expect of an individual who manages an important breeding program. There's a lot to be said for youthful enthusiasm and the energy it brings, but wisdom only comes with age and experience. It's exciting to think of what the 2030 version of Carter will bring to WSU's winter wheat breeding program. As is par for the course with these podcasts, I had to cut nearly as much of our conversation as I included here. When I asked what Carter most loved about his position, he said it was the relationships he had built with farmers, learning what it was they needed, and then developing a product to solve the problem. As for what he didn't like, cutting headrows by hand in the heat of the summer was right up there. Ask what ten years at the helm had taught him, he said he understands much more about what is and isn't important. In 2016, Carter and spring wheat breeder Mike Pumphrey were named co-chairs of the Vogel Endowed Chair in Wheat Breeding and Genetics. Orville Vogel was a U.S. Department of Agriculture wheat breeder in Pullman beginning in the 1930s. He released the first semi-dwarf wheat variety in 1960, which revolutionized yield expectations. Along with the honor of holding the endowed chair comes funding that helps both Carter and Pumphrey operate their programs. I asked Carter what it meant to be associated with the chair that was created by the Washington Grain Commission and named for the groundbreaking wheat breeder.
1: That was a great honor to be named one of the co-chairs. Um, you know, live- building on the legacy of uh, Dr. Vogel and all the other wee breeders that have come before both Mike and I within WSU and the USDA for that matter as well you know it's it's just a, a great honor to be able to again kind of follow in their footsteps and build upon the legacy you know for, for my program it really allows us to bring in some new technologies that are going to make the program more effective so it, it gives us those funds to like bring in our high throughput phenotyping to purchase some drones, uh, to get some people on board that can help us with processing the images. And then a lot of the work on the genetic side as well. So, uh, you know, genomic selection and, and making predictions, uh, varieties and how successful they might be for different traits. You know, It takes some resources to, to run your entire program through uh, genotyping and to analyze all that data. So it really allows us to take these technologies that are out there and really apply them to the program. And so that's where we've put most of our effort with uh, the endowed chair funds are really trying to figure out how to get the program more effective and efficient at what we do. Uh, So ultimately, we can release better varieties for the growers of the state.
0: Okay. The Washington Grain Commission directed $527,000 into your program in the 2020-2021 budget year. But that's not all the money you operate on. There's royalty money from seed sales as well as funding from other projects. What is the total funding of your program?
1: That's a really hard number to, uh, to look at, you know, but, you know, when I kind of thought about that and, and estimated it a little bit, you know, we're probably looking at around, uh, you know, definitely over a million dollars, probably around 1.2 to 1.5 million dollars that goes into the, the program itself. Um, and again, this is, this is a various different levels you know, when I, when I think about even like the graduate students that I have and all the research that they're doing, I consider that part of the program as well, because all the research the graduate students do directly applies to how we're going to breed new varieties or or make selections. And so, you know, this is counting all the federal grants that come into the program, because most of those, again, are, are funding graduate students and and all of our federal grants, again, directly relate to something we're doing in the breeding program. So, you know, when you look at that, when you look at the, the contributions of WSU itself, as far as all our lab space, all our office space, you know, all the vehicles that we need, you know, just the entire component of that, you know, it's, it's definitely, uh, like I say, definitely over a million dollars and probably somewhere between one and 1.5 million that goes into the program.
0: Okay. Are you satisfied with that amount or could you do more with more money?
1: You know, overall I'm, I'm, I'm really satisfied with where we're at. I mean, we have great, space in the greenhouse especially with the the new addition of the greenhouse we have a lot of space there really doesn't limit us that much anymore you know we have great uh field locations great farms from from that aspect really satisfied but like you say if you've if you wanted to give me a little more money, I'd be happy to put out a couple more locations of trialing because the more data we can get back, the better we are at what we do. So it's, it's really managed now. And that's probably the limitation with funding really is, you know, how many locations can we be at to test our varieties?
0: Uh-huh. Interesting. Interesting. Now, Aaron, plant breeders make the big decisions about which varieties or lines to cross with and which new technologies to utilize. But you have technicians who do much of the detail work. Funding for technicians seems to be perennially on the chopping block. Tell me about your technicians, their funding sources, and their importance to your winter wheat program.
1: Yeah, so definitely the technicians are a big part of the, the breeding program. So we have six technicians that work with you know within or jointly with the winter wheat breeding program. So that's two technicians that manage all our field work, two technicians that manage um, all of our greenhouse work and, and the production of double haploids, uh, one technician that works in our molecular lab doing all of our uh, genomics work and marker-assisted selection, and then a technician that works uh, with end-use quality. And so funding from, from those, mainly there comes from WSU, so WSU contributes some money to the technician that's in the, the quality lab. And that's shared between, you know, me and Mike and some other researchers who submit quality samples there and then partial support for two of my research technicians. Um, and then the remaining of that funding actually comes from the Washington Grain Commission. So uh, as you mentioned before, that $500,000 that comes from the Washington Grain Commission, a lot of that is directed towards uh, technicians and just the people that be there to, to make the crosses to plant the seed, to to manage those trials out in the field, to help with harvest, and you know all those kind of duties. Again, the re- the importance of the program is is really hard to to verbalize. You know, there's there's no way one person could do this. You know, if I had to get to all my locations uh, any time, it would be difficult. You know, if I had to make all the crosses myself, difficult. If I had to run all the DNA markers, very difficult. And so, it's really nice to have a team behind me. That, that I can trust, that I, I value the work that they do, and I trust the work that they do. We, we still all work in a team, and it's not that I just sit, you know, in my office and, and I'm never out doing any of the work. You know, I'm out there right with them helping out with, with every aspect as well. Uh, but it's, it's nice to be able to trust that if I ask somebody to, you know, run some DNA markers that I know they're going to be high quality DNA markers. And then that data, when it comes back to me, I'm able to better make decisions about what lines to cross together, what lines to select in advance in the program, uh, because I have that additional information. So yeah, it's, like I say, their importance is definitely invaluable to the program and really allows us to do and be as effective as we are because we have their support.
0: Aaron, breeding winter wheat varieties is certainly your priority, but it's not the only thing you do. What else are you working on? Like I said,
1: I I run a research program and a lot of that research is to help train graduate students and as I mentioned previously, all of that research is directly applicable back to the breeding program. So when we look at some of the research that I do, you know, I'm, I'm focusing on using high-throughput phenotyping. So that would be drones or sensors or whatever type of phenotyping we can do that's, that's either, you know, typically slow. You know, if we can speed it up with a, with a sensor or a drone very helpful, or any kind of phenotyping that, that I can't see with my eye. So, you know, something like photosynthetic rates. I have no clue if I look at a plant how much photosynthesis is going on, how much water might be in that plant. And some of these sensors can give us an idea of that. Um, so we're doing a lot of research in, in that type of phenotyping and have some federal grants that help support that. And then we also focus a lot on the traits of interest to the state and to our growers and trying to identify the genetics behind those. So we look a lot at like snow mold tolerance and, and what genes are controlling snow mold. So we can better select for those uh, looking at end use quality. You know, it's very expensive to to run all our lines through end use quality and to bake a loaf of bread on them all and to bake a cookie on them all. So we're starting to try and identify the genetics behind good baking varieties so that we can use markers to get rid of the bad varieties. So we don't even have to put them through through the quality lab. And then, you know, stripe rust is, is very important and we have a, a big focus on stripe rust as well. So those are kind of the, the major areas of research that I do. And as you can see, they all kind of fit right in with the, the breeding program as well. Like I say, even though you say I kind of have a breeding program and a research program, you know, in
0: part they're kind of one in the same. Okay. Okay. Now, you recently appeared before the Washington Grain Commission, virtually, of course, where you talked about new varieties coming to market. Can you talk here about what's coming and what's in the pipeline? So
1: we've got a few varieties that we're really excited about that are coming out. You know, all of them right now are probably with seed companies in in the registered seed production. Uh, But we've got a new soft white named Devote. Um, and that's a line that's targeted to our, our low to intermediate rainfall zones of the state. Um, it's, a, it's a variety that does very well under, under low rainfall conditions, but also can respond well if we get these periodic summer rains that we've been seeing the past couple of years it can take advantage of, of those as well. So it's kind of that dual purpose. It'll do well in, in the worst of years, but will also do well if you we get some of those timely rains. Um, and then on top of that, it's got all the other characteristics that you need as far as um, disease resistance, you know, stripe rust, snow mold, eye spot resistance also has a very good uh, uh, fusarium crown rot resistance, which a few varieties out there have. We also have a, a hard red winter wheat variety named Scorpio. And we really like this variety because it has that high end yield potential like some of the other hard reds have. But in that, we also added aluminum tolerance because we know a lot of our, our soils are starting to get lower pH, and especially our no till systems are getting low pH. So it'll fit very well into a no-till system. And then through some recent screening, we also found that it has hessian fly resistance in it as well, which is one of the first uh, winter wheats that we've identified that has a hessian fly resistance in it, which will also fit very well into our, our no si- no-till systems. So we're really excited about that hard red variety. And then uh, we've released two new clearfield varieties. Uh, one is named Piranha CL Plus, and the other is named Sockeye C Plus. Um, and these varieties have, both have a very broad uh, footprint across the state. They're they're topping yield trials, and uh, you know, outperforming the other clearfield varieties that are in the trials pretty handily. You know, we're excited about those. And then again, all the all the disease traits that are that are needed with those varieties, as far as against snow mold and ice spot and uh, stripe rust resistance, are in those varieties. Um, you know, they look to have uh, good falling numbers with them, good cold tolerance. You know, good test weight, good end use quality. Again, kind of hitting all the different all the different traits that we need. So we're really excited about those two varieties and the potential that they'll have uh, to displace a lot of our current clearfield varieties. Not only are they higher yielding, but they're fixing some of the issues with some of our current varieties, specifically stripe rust resistance and susceptibility to eye spot.
0: Okay, okay. Now, Aaron, I talked with club wheat breeder Kim Campbell for a podcast a few months ago, and she indicated that the clearfield technology is beginning to fail, especially in the southeastern part of the state where weeds are becoming resistant to the chemical beyond and yet, here you are releasing new clear-filled varieties. What is your thinking with regard to clear-filled varieties in the future?
1: I think there's definitely still going to be a place for clear-filled varieties. Definitely, as you, as you get the overuse of any one chemistry, you can start building up resistance on um, the weed populations. But, but our hope is, as we continue to provide growers with different modes of action for control, uh, different rotations. The Clearfield varieties are still going to be useful as as you rotate into other systems, or you use some other chemistry, and then you want to, you know, three or four years later, want to come back to beyond chemistry. So those herbicide rotations are, are important, which I think are still going to keep uh, Clearfield varieties useful in the state. You know, and then again, there's still other areas where they're they're still very effective at controlling the, the weed populations that are there. So we we definitely still need them. You know, another thing that that you need sometimes is just because we've used the group two herbicides, which is where Beyond belongs. Uh, you know, we've used those for so long, our soils do have a little bit of residual activity. So sometimes just by planting a clear-filled variety, even if you never sprayed it, you could see a yield advantage if your soils had uh, some residual in them. So there's a lot of different components of a a clear-filled variety that would be useful.
0: Also, when I was talking to Kim Campbell, she told me that there is a clearfield club variety that is coming out that you're responsible for how is it that you're working with club wheat
1: the club wheat we work on really still is in partnership with with kim campbell there at the usda Um, is is what we found is you know if, if kim's developing club varieties that are resistant to beyond they have to go through the qualification process just the same that they have to go through on the common wheat side that I develop. And that that requires, you know, a specific number of testing locations and very specific, you know, sprays and, and treatments that go in there to prove that our varieties are are resistant to the chemical. And so when we got talking, it just didn't make sense that she had a separate trial for club wheats that were going to be sprayed and I had a separate trial for, for common and so we've taken a lot of the, the club wheat varieties and we kind of just scoop them into our program to do the uh, qualification testing for the herbicide because we, we have done that for a long time. We know how to do it well and we've already got everything set up to do that. And then she maintains the, the club wheat in her just normal breeding program just to test it for superiority to make sure it hits all the other benchmarks that we're, we're shooting for. So I make sure it hits the tolerance benchmark to the chemical and she makes sure it hits every other tolerances. Now, you know, initially, why did I make the crosses to club wheat? Um, You know, that just goes back to I, at the time, had the license agreement in place to make those crosses and the USDA had not yet signed the license agreement. So I, I made a few crosses to club wheat just to get the germplasm growing. And then once the USDA got the license signed, um, you know, Kim continues to make those uh, crosses now. So it was just a it was just a way to to get started in some club wheat germplasm um, while we were waiting for some of those uh, documents to get
0: signed. Okay, okay. Now, Aaron, you're also releasing varieties utilizing the coaxium wheat production system, which is different but similar to Clearfield technology, using a different herbicide. Drew Lyon has said without careful management, herbicide resistant biotypes are likely to be selected very quickly, rendering the coaxium system ineffective. What are your thoughts concerning the release of varieties with this new weed technology?
1: Yeah, so you know, I think the technology is going to be very useful in in our system. Still, as you mentioned earlier, we are getting our group two resistance, and this brings in another mode of action with a, a group one resistant chemistry. But yeah, you know, like with any with any system, it has to be managed well, and you know, with any overuse of any one chemical, um, you're going to start seeing resistance. And so, you know, I I leave it to, you know, Drew and he, you know, he understands weed management and and herbicide resistance better than I do. And so, you know, we kind of continually look to him to help us understand, you know, how we need to manage these systems, right? Because we'll, we'll be releasing, you know, coaxium varieties, but what we want to do with the release of those is also help the growers understand how they need to manage those varieties so you know what's going to be the best herbicide rotation with those quaxium varieties and and how to manage them so we can get the longest life possible out of that technology right and that's that's going to be helpful for everybody
0: at the recent wgc meeting you spoke about an odd occurrence you saw in fall sowing wheat crops of the variety mila and curiosity can you relate what you saw and what you think happens to cause it?
1: Well, this might be hard to describe over <laughs> over a podcast too, but is, is what we found was that um, some of the crowns of Mila and Curiosity had actually been pushed out of the soil and were sitting about you know an inch above the soil surface. So between the seed. And where the crown actually forms, uh, there's a little stem, if you will, called a hypocotyl. So that hypocotyl is is what kind of pushes the crown up and traditionally would sit an inch, half an inch below the soil surface. And we found this year with Mila and Curiosity in certain fields that that hypocotyl had extended so much that it, it again pushed that crown out of the soil surface. So it was visible above the soil surface. The only time I had ever seen this previously was when a seed company had tried to put gibberellic acid, uh, which promotes germination on to seed to try and help the seed germinate and emerge in some of our deep planted, really dry soils. And so when they applied this gibberellic acid to curiosity we saw the same phenomena but like i say I've, i've never seen it in any other year under just normal, normal planting conditions, except for this year in 2020, we got a lot of phone calls about it. Uh, So once I saw the fields, you know, I was scratching my head. So I came back and sent an email to all of our colleagues here and, and started asking, you know, what might be going on. And the only thing that we got back was, you know, in talking with Camille Stieber with the USDA, you know, her background is in gibberellic acid and Germination, and she pointed us to a couple papers where, in the laboratory, they were able to promote germination through the use of liquid smoke, which mimicked this gibberellic acid, um, also promoting germination. And so, the the only thing that I've been able to think is that maybe because of all the wildfires that we were having and the smoke that was occurring uh, right around that planting time you know, out in in the dry country where curiosity would have been planted right there, right before, you know, Labor Day, right after Labor Day, uh, maybe that somehow mimicked this gibberellic acid hormone and and caused some of this to happen. But that's the only thing I've been able to put, put my finger on is potentially it was that smoke that caused it.
0: There are a handful of advanced breeding technologies on the market, the most well-known perhaps being the gene editing technology, CRISPR-Cas9. Any plans for WSU to utilize these advanced methods? You know, as
1: these advanced methods come online, you know, there, there's a lot of considerations, right? So, so the first is we just have to make sure the technology works and works efficiently. And, and they're still trying to really get this gene editing to work efficiently in, in some of the different crops. wheat being one of those, you know, in other crops, it, it, it works well. And part of that is because it has to go through a tissue culture process and, and a regeneration of the plants. You know the the one aspect is just you know is it working and is it efficient and you know what genes can we target with with this CRISPR Cas9 and then of course the other side of it is is marker acceptance and and what our export market thinks of these varieties you know are they considering these the, the traditional GMO varieties or are are they going to see them as, as non GMO varieties and, and what implications those might have on, on export markets. So, you know, it's something there that, you know, we know about the technologies and and we're interested in using them because they can solve um, a lot of our problems that we have very efficiently. But then on the other side, you know, we're always in close contact with uh, the Washington grain commission and U S wheat associates and, and talking about how, this might impact um, our international markets, and so you know we're we're aware of those as well. So to date, we don't have anything in in the breeding program right now where we're using CRISPR-Cas9 or any of the other gene editing technologies. Um, so you know, no GMO varieties in in the wheat breeding program or anything like that. Um, but yeah, it's definitely a technology that's there that that could be useful. And, you know, it's just going to take a few more years as we watch both how the technology develops and how our markets um, develop to see if it's going to be something that, that we use in the breeding program or, or if we're unable to use it.
0: I have read articles that suggest advanced breeding technologies like CRISPR-Cas9 will be as revolutionary to agriculture as the transition from horses to tractors. It will be fascinating to follow the progress of the technology as Carter enters his second decade at the helm of the winter wheat breeding program. Of course, as he indicated, our overseas markets will have a lot to say about whether the technology is embraced. But I have the feeling it won't lead to another GMO situation. We're smarter now, right? As I said at the beginning, wisdom and experience go hand in hand. I hope you've enjoyed episode 207 or what I entitled, Time Flies When You're Breeding Wheat, about my conversation with Aaron Carter, WSU's winter wheat breeder. Please join me here again next week for another episode of Wheat All About It. You think we're simple, you think we're not right. Look at your cities and ask yourself who's right. We've got country and you've got crime. We've got green and you've got grime. Let there be no doubt, we have what it takes to till the soil until our back aches. Just give us a break and don't be so rude. We love the work and you love the food. We feed you.